Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. And this week, we're also going to be having a short episode today. We're just going to be doing a bit more of those Minute Mysteries by H.A. Ripley, also called Detectigrams, which I think is a great word. So yeah, last week we did three of them, and so this week I think we're going to do four, five, and six. Number four, five, and six, obviously. I'm like never good at these things. <laughs> I don't think I got a single one last time, although I did get... Uh, okay, I'm just kidding. I did not get close last week. <laughs> so, we're going to be reading more of them today, and maybe I'll be better at them, I don't know. These are just crazy short little logic puzzles. They're only a couple of pages long, so they're very short, that's why I'm doing three of them, and it's still going to be a pretty short episode. Um, so yeah, with no more waffle, let's get started on number four, The Poison Murder Case. The Poison Murder Case I'm going to the theater now. Bob Cooley told Professor Fordney at their club. I wish you'd spend the evening with Uncle John. He's been worried lately. Upon reaching the Cooley home an hour later, Fordney found the butler in an agitated state. After ordering coffee, Mr. Cooley locked himself in his library an hour ago, sir. When I rapped on the door just now, he didn't answer. The two men forced the lock and found John Cooley on the floor, an empty strychnine bottle at his side. The terrace door was open. After careful examination, Fordney returned home. A few hours later, Bob Cooley entered his living room. Thought I'd stop by on my way home. Don't you think Uncle John looks worried? Your Uncle Bob is dead. Strychnine. Your butler and I found him lying on the floor, but were too late to save him. How horrible, Fordney! Why was the library door locked, do you suppose? That puzzles me. Has your butler been with you long? For years, replied Bob, his head buried in his hands. Well, you're a wealthy man now. What of it? Uncle John meant more to me than all the money in the world. I wish I could believe that, replied Fordney. You'll need a better alibi than those, pointing to the ticket stubs Bob was nervously fingering. How had Cooley aroused the professor's suspicions? Okay, so, uh, let's see. Bob Cooley is the nephew of Uncle John, and Uncle John died from strychnine poisoning. And, um, Bob Cooley is the one, according to Fordney, that did it. So we need to figure out how Professor Fordney knew that he did it. So, this'll be interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's see. Bob specifically told Fordney at their club that he was like, Okay, I'm going to the theater. Maybe you should spend the evening with Uncle John. I don't know. So that's the first couple sentences. He's like, I'm going to the theater now. I wish you'd spend the evening with Uncle John. So maybe that's like trying to set up his alibi. Hmm. Okay, but I think, I think the key here is Bob's alibi. Because he mentions in the last sentence, he's like, you'll need a better alibi than those. And he pointed at the ticket stubs. So there's, there's a hole in his theater-going alibi somewhere. Oh. Okay, so I'm reading this again. In the first little part, Bob is like, okay, I'm going to the theater now. Go spend time with Uncle, ba Uncle John. Goodbye. And he leaves, right? And then Fordney gets to the Cooley home an hour later. And Mr. Cooley, the uncle, had been locked in the library an hour by the time he got there. So that means he, like, Bob Cooley left and the library door was locked at about the same time. From what I can read. I don't know. I don't know if I'm reading it right. Maybe it's just uh, the style of writing because it's such a short story. But that's what I'm imagining. So maybe that timing is a little bit too much of a, of a coincidence. But usually these kind of logic puzzles focus more on actual facts and logic than just, like, coincidences, you know? 
Oh, um, hmm. So, I don't know how things went in the 20s. <laughs> Again, I have, like, no, almost no historical knowledge of the time besides Prohibition and the Great Depression. But how long does it take to go to the theater? Like, you were, like, maybe, like, by the theater he meant not, like, a cinema, but, like, a theater where you watch a play, you know? And those are three hours long, right? So, it was an hour between when he left and when Fordney got to the estate and found the dead body. So that was an hour, right? And then, quote, a few hours later, Bob Cooley entered his living room. After he had already done the examination and everything. So, that means, that, that implies that it's been more than three hours. So maybe there's a hole there, like maybe he was gone for too long. Um, but I don't think that's true either, because why would he be gone after the murder longer? So I don't think that's it. Let's see. Hmm. It's always something really simple and basic, with like a detail that we never noticed before or something. But just after Fordney told Bob that his uncle was dead, the first question he asked was, why was the library door locked? Does that have any importance? I don't know. <laughs> oh man, I'm like looking for something really stupid. Yeah, I'm stumped on this one. <laughs> I did come up with a couple of possible ideas, but I don't think they're the actual right idea. Um, I don't know if it has to do with the coffee or something like that, because the coffee is what the strychnine was in. Actually, no, he ordered coffee, locked himself in the library, and then later they found him with a strychnine bottle. Um, so I don't know where the coffee went. Maybe it's just in the room where they didn't mention it, so yeah. Yeah, I'm stumped. Let's just look at the solution here. <laughs> I am so bad at these. Okay, here's the solution. Unless Bob Cooley had returned home after telling the professor he was going to the theater, he could not have known the library door was locked. Oh my gosh. The fact that he did, coupled with a strong motive, naturally directed suspicion to him. He inadvertently gave himself away. So that one question, his first question, remember, after he was told that his uncle was dead was, why was the library door locked? And yeah, I guess he shouldn't have known that. Oh my gosh. That's so obvious. <laughs> Whenever you hear the solution for these, they're just so painfully obvious, but you can never see them when you're actually reading it. So that was a good one. So let's go on to number five, a strange kidnapping. I haven't the faintest idea why I was kidnapped, said Johnson to Professor Fordney an hour after he returned home. I never miss Sunday evening services, you know, so I'm afraid I haven't much time to discuss it now. Oh, just a brief account of your experience is all that is necessary, remarked the professor. So Johnson proceeded. I was walking along Burnham Street about 2 a.m. on Friday, when two masked men with drawn guns ordered me into a blue sedan. I was blindfolded and gagged. After driving for about an hour, I was led into a house and down some stairs to a small room, where they removed my blindfold and gag. They took off my outer clothing and hung it on a chair. Then they questioned me at length about the Shirley case, and refused to believe I knew nothing of it. Exasperated, they threatened to kill me, and when I remonstrated, one of them hit me on the head with a blackjack, and I went down unconscious. The next thing I knew was when I came to with a terrific headache. I lay still for a few minutes, and, hearing nothing but the ticking of my watch, I cautiously got to my feet and groped for the door, as the room was in darkness. Before I could locate it, two men, still masked, entered, turned on the light, apologized profusely for the treatment I had received, and said they had mistaken me for someone else. Then they gave me something to eat, blindfolded me again, and drove me to within a block of my home, still apologizing for the mistake. Before I could remove my blindfold after getting out of the car, it had sped away. It's all very mysterious to me, I can't make anything of it. 
I won't give you away, Johnson, smiled the professor. Your wife undoubtedly believes your yarn, but <laughs> you'd better think up a better one next time. What flaw did the professor find in Johnson's story which proved the kidnapping was a fake? Okay, fake kidnapping story, I see. <laughs> he was blindfolded and gagged, and I think that's an important fact to know, is that he's blindfolded and gagged. How could the kidnappers know they had kidnapped the wrong person without looking at him? Like, they just walked in and just said, oh, we got the wrong guy, I'm sorry. Maybe, like, I mean, that's it's possible, I'm just saying it's not as likely. What about the gag? I don't know if that's very important. So they- I forgot this part. <laughs> so, after he was in the car, they removed his blindfold and gag once they got him to the room. So they took off his outer clothing, and it was hung on a chair. And then they questioned him, and uh, they threatened to kill him and knocked him out. So, at this point, he's- uh, supposedly, he's in the basement of some house, and his clothes are on a chair nearby. Then he still had his watch on. So, because he said when he when he came to, he heard nothing but the ticking of his watch. Maybe the ticking of the watch is really where it's at. I don't know. <laughs> so, the first thing he did after he came to, he, quote, cautiously got to my feet and groped for the door. But I'd think that if I was in that situation, my first priority would be to get my clothes back. Because they took off his- I mean, maybe by quote-unquote outer clothes, they meant like his coat and stuff and his shoes or something. But the way that I interpret it is that he's just chilling out in his underwear, so maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. Maybe they have a different term for that in the 20s, I don't know. It is like a hundred years old. It's strange to think that these stories are a hundred years old. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so they took off his outer clothing, so I think- hmm, I'm really focusing on this clothing thing, because it's strange to think that as soon as he gets up, and like, you'd think that he would focus on getting his clothing back on. Especially because he's not blindfolded or gagged anymore, because they took that off when they started questioning him. So, yeah, like, why didn't you get your clothes back, honey? <laughs> okay, that's all I got for this. Um, and also the ticking of the watch thing, I don't know about that. So, let's look at the solution, shall we? Okay, this is the solution. Had Johnson wound his watch immediately before 2 a.m. Friday, the time of his alleged kidnapping, it would not have been running Sunday afternoon when he recovered consciousness and said he heard it ticking. No standard-made watch will run 60 hours without winding. Okay, this is a case of me not understanding how things work. <laughs> because, like, you know, watches that you need to wind don't really exist anymore. I mean, they do exist, but they're not nearly as common. Like, I have a smartwatch, you know? I'm cool and hip, you know? I don't have a watch that you need to wind up. So, yeah, that's just um, me being a youngin. <laughs> so maybe if any of you guys got it, Cool, good good for you. I guess I should have gotten that. I guess I was kind of right about the ticking of the watch being important. Um, but that's all I got. I didn't really get any solution out of that. So, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the last one that we're going to do today. Number six, a valuable formula. I had just stepped behind that screen near the door to wash my hands when a man, gun in hand, entered the room and stood motionless for a few seconds, said Hyde. Apparently satisfied no one was here, he walked to the desk over there by the window. As he rummaged through the papers in the drawer, I hastily dialed headquarters, leaving the receiver off the hook, trusting you would trace the call. I was afraid to talk because I was unarmed, and he looked like a desperate fellow. You say he took nothing but a valuable formula from your desk? inquired the professor. That's all! He touched nothing else! Rather careless to leave such an important paper lying about like that, wasn't it? Well, I suppose so, though it was only a copy. I sold the original to Schmitz yesterday for $20,000, and I intended to destroy the duplicate tonight. 
Would that formula be valuable to anyone else? Yes, it would be worth twice as much to Schmitz's competitors. Why didn't you sell it to them in the first place, then? Schmitz financed me while I was perfecting the formula, so I thought it only right to sell it to him, even though I could have got more for it from the other firm. As this is such a small, bright room, and you observed so much through that crack in the screen, said Fordney sarcastically, you should be able to give us a very good description of the intruder. Oh, I can do that, Hyde replied, with assurance. He was a big fellow, about six feet tall, and weighed around 200 pounds. He had jet black hair, swarthy complexion, an unusually large nose, and a vicious looking mouth. As he left, obviously unaware of my presence, I noticed he had a big rip in the back of his blue coat. Well, Hyde, as part of your story is incredible, you can't expect me to believe any of it. Why did the professor say this? So obviously this story that he's telling about the intruder is fake. So the first thing actually as I was reading this, I was thinking, wait a second, wouldn't phones make enough noise that the intruder would hear him? So even if he just dialed it and left it off the hook, wouldn't he hear it? Like it's a small room and if there's a crack on the screen, he would have been able to hear him dialing and hear the phone ringing. So that's what I'm thinking is that like, the intruder, like, yes, you may have been afraid to talk, but, like, the phone would have made enough noise. I don't think there's any problem with the the theft, the idea of the theft itself, because, like, yeah, it's a valuable formula, and I can see why people would want it. it. Obviously, theft is not the way to go about that, but I can see that there is an actual motive here, even though the story is fake. And Fordney sarcastically said, Oh, since you could see so much through that crack in the screen, you should be able to give a very good description of the intruder. Um, so I think he's implying that, like, he really... Like, how could he have seen so much through the crack in the screen, you know? Like, there probably wasn't much that you could see. You could probably hear more than you could see. So, I'm focusing on the fact that, one, he should not have been able to see that much through the screen, and two, that the phone probably should have tipped him off that somebody was watching him. So, that is my idea. <laughs> Let's look at the solution, shall we? In a small room, the intruder would unquestionably have heard Hyde dialing headquarters and therefore could not have been unaware of his presence. As Hyde had obviously lied about this, Fordney was convinced he had fabricated the entire story in order to sell the formula twice. I got it right! Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was right! Oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and phones back then, they were like rotary phones, right? Like rotary phones are loud. They like make that long clicking sound when you put in every number. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm so proud of myself. I got it right. I accept this reward, and I would like to thank my parents and all my friends and my podcast listeners or something. <laughs> oh man, I'm so proud of myself. What a great thing to end a podcast episode on, am I right? <laughs> hmm, that was hilarious. Okay, so that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed. I definitely enjoyed reading these. <laughs> Oh man, I'm getting better at these, apparently, because I actually got one right! Oh my gosh, I'm so proud of myself. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys have an awesome day, and yeah, enjoy winter, I don't know. Because <laughs> here in, uh, where I'm at, in California, it's, like, not cold. <laughs> I guess it's kind of cold. It's like 60 degrees, which for here is really cold, so... It doesn't really feel like winter, but I know it is winter. Uh, so yeah, happy winter, I guess. Now that all the big, you know, holidays are past, then... Yeah. Again, I'm pre-recording this on Christmas Eve, so I haven't even gone through any of the holidays yet, so, uh, woo, happy Christmas to me, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I hope you guys have an amazing week, and I hope that you enjoy your time off, whether it's your job or your school or whatever you're doing. 
if you even have time off. Um, yeah, I hope that you will be safe and have fun. And also, I forgot to mention this last episode, but if you have any context or anything, if you want to give me a cool book that I could read, maybe some riddles that you think I'd enjoy, send them to me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. Um, you can also like or comment or subscribe on whatever podcast uh, app you're on because that would really help these cool stories and riddles spread and become more well-known because these stories are really cool and I'm enjoying these and these are like literally 100 years old and that's kind of blowing my mind right now. <laughs> also, lastly, there are always those two links in the show notes. There's one that's that's just my PayPal link that you can directly donate it through. And there's also a Patreon link where you can become either a Watson or a Sherlock. You'll get extra episodes per week and extra stuff like that. All that good stuff. Also, I was actually thinking that as one of the perks of one of my tiers, I should make, I should give you guys a discount code for my Etsy store. (laughs) I think that'd be a fun little thing to have, you know? Oh man, yeah. So anyway, have a great week, and yeah, I'll see you guys next Monday. Bye!